Bond Buzz OG and Slow Burn are a pair of functional, bold, alcohol-free spirits that are designed to get the party started. Created by wild child turned sober curious entrepreneur Faye Bebehani, these babies pack a powerful punch. Both are formulated with a unique blend of amino acids, nootropics, and adaptogens to boost your energy levels, mood, and vibe. With a bitter citrus base, Bon Buzz OG is the more mellow of the two, while Slow Burn brings some jalapeno heat to kick things up a notch. With a touch of caffeine, both will keep you going in times when it's hard to stay socially motivated. And with zero sugar, they also clock in at only five calories per serving. Bon Buzz OG and Slow Burn both pair great with tonic, soda water, and your other favorite mixer. And you can also use them as a base for any gingery, citrus-based, non-alcoholic drinks. Mules, martini drinks, mimosas, punch, you get the idea. You can order online at bonbuzz.com. That's B-O-N-B-U-Z.com. And follow along at bonbuzz on Instagram for recipes and all kinds of other fun stuff. You can also get 10% off your order with the code RUBY10 at the link in the episode show notes. Welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast. I'm your host, Ruby Warrington, and my guest today is the author and founder of The Luckiest Club, Laura McCowan. Laura is the first person I've had on the show twice. The first time we were talking about her book, We Are the Luckiest, and I invited her back to discuss an essay she published in the New York Times last fall, titled How I Knew I Needed to Quit Instagram. I could relate personally to so much of what she described in her piece, in which she compared her relationship with social media with her alcohol addiction. The essay also came out around the time that reports surfaced linking social media use to negative mental health outcomes among young girls in particular. And it seemed to me like it was part of a much larger and ongoing conversation about how we navigate our lives online in a healthy way. As I was researching my questions for this interview, the parallels between social media and a substance like alcohol became clearer and clearer, and we get into all of that, along with what happened when her agent and publisher gently suggested that she get back on Instagram for the sake of her career. This is Laura McCowan. Laura, thank you for joining me again. You're the <laughs> first person who I've had on twice. So Really? Yeah. Oh, that's I so feel like I feel like that's the sign that the podcast is maturing because it makes sense that you'd have people on more than once who yes. whose work you particularly resonate with or like whose voice you appreciate, you know. So yeah, yeah. thank you. You've reached a certain point. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so a little bit of a preamble. In October last year, and I'm astounded it's so far away now, but October last year, you published an essay in the New York Times titled how I knew I needed to quit Instagram. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a Saturday morning. I, I read it and I broke one of my own tech rules in that instant to email you right away, just thanking you for voicing what I certainly had been feeling, what was an undercurrent that I'd kind of been sensing among a lot of people around their social media use. Mm -hmm. um, and so much of what you wrote about in that essay, I could relate to, um, and I will share the link for people to read it so we don't have to kind of like unpack it all here yeah. now. Yeah. But um, yeah, I have a strict no email rule at the weekend and it's one of the ways that I have found to kind of manage my tech addiction. <laughs> so it was Love kind that. of ironic to me that I, that was, it, it was an, it's a pure trigger impulse. I have to email right away. I need to tell her right now. I know. Right I now. get that though. 
And I guess I'm really curious to hear what kind of a reaction you had from from other people, whether it was people who are familiar with your work or people who are just, you know, reading the essay um, after that was published. Yeah, there were a a couple sorts of feedback. One I heard from a lot of other authors who I'm friends with that, and some that I'm not friends with that just maybe read my newsletter and found it there or found it uh, from the New York times. And they, it, the, the refrain was, oh my God, tell me more. I want to do this so bad. Do I have to like, basically what you said was like, I need to talk about this and how are you doing it? And how do you feel? And what's it like to make that decision? And so on. Mm -hmm. So a lot of me too. And let's talk. Uh, I feel the same way. And the other feedback I got was more from people who aren't public with their work and just said, oh, I've been, I have experienced so many of the similar things in sobriety from alcohol that, that I feel the same way about technology and specifically social media and specifically Instagram. And it's just nice to get, like, have someone articulate my thoughts Um, so yeah, a lot, I didn't receive any, actually there were a few people that, um, a very small number that said, oh, I I wish you could find a way to stay on. I just like that you're there, but that was a tiny minority, uh, of the, the feedback. Most of it was me too. What can we do? I'm, I want to talk about this. It's like when you, (laughs) it was like when I got divorced and people were like, (gasps) oh my God, talk to me. Like they want to talk about their relationship. Right. And the the similarities throughout the piece, you draw the similarities between your Instagram addiction and your alcohol addiction, or rather the relationship that you have with Instagram and the kind of problems it was causing you Mm -hmm. and the similarities with alcohol. And that's absolutely something I, I noticed, I suppose, that I was trying to moderate with Instagram a few years ago you know, which is when I started giving myself rules around like only between these hours and never at the weekends and like never read the comments and all these sorts of rules. And I had this like, that's exactly what I used to do with alcohol. This is so I know. interesting. Hello, red flag that I'm, that this is an addiction because one definition of addiction is continuing to do something that you know is causing you harm and not being able to stop. Right. What were the other sort of similarities that you, that you really noticed then? Yeah, definitely the rules that was a big tip off. I actually remember reading yours once on Instagram, I I believe where you said, I log off every night at eight. I delete the app from my phone every night at eight and I delete it for the whole weekend. And that stuck with me. I tried doing that too. Uh, Other things that I would be anxious. It it used to be just that I would be anxious. I would get more of an excited feeling when I, when I would go in there, but I would kind of leave feeling anxious, Mm -hmm. but then it was just anxious. As soon as I, when I thought about it, I would get anxious when I thought about what people are interacting with, what's happening on my profile and who's commenting and the whole situation. Uh, kind of monitoring this online persona and other people and, and tracking other people's too. 
just anxiety. And I could feel it when I would open up the app, my body would start, my heart would start to beat faster. I feel like my, you know, my throat was clenched and yeah, just pure anxiety. And then the, the other really disturbing thing, the most disturbing thing to me was how much it stole my attention to be present wherever I was. I wouldn't, I couldn't just experience any moment. It all was fed through this filter of, is this content Mm -hmm. (laughs) from the most banal things to, you know, the bigger things, everything was through that filter. Everything was fed through this performance. Like, could I, could I use my life? Could I use this? And that really bothered me Mm. as it should, as it should. I got sober from alcohol to be present and free. And, and I, and I, to feel like that was being taken away like I was allowing it to be taken away again differently. It was really upsetting. And I think the other piece, and I don't know if this equates so much to alcohol, um, but it was, maybe it does. It's just dysregulating overall, you know, too high and too low. And what I know about dopamine is you don't want to be too high or too low. We think, oh, too high is fine but too low is, and, and you don't want to be on either, either of those, the ends of those spectrums, period. You want to really try to be in this, not in this dopaminergic state, but in like more of a serotonin state. And it just, it, it, it sent me everywhere yeah, into the extremes all the time. So as it is designed to do, because those extreme highs are ultimately what become addictive. But then I remember speaking to somebody else about this and she was talking about how the lows are sort of equally addictive or the anxiety spikes become equally addictive because there's this sense of like, I have to put the fire out. So this hypervigilant kind of state that we can also be in. And I was really, because we hear so much about like, oh, you get these high validation high from all the likes. And I once I started being able to really separate and get perspective and notice the feeling states that I was experiencing when I was there, having positive comments felt equally as dangerous and as much of a threat to my overall sort of equilibrium as the nasty comments, because I noticed this huge spike in like validation, which then would make me want to post more, would make me, make me want to reply, which would essentially make me more quote unquote vulnerable to the attack if there was an attack coming, you know, and then. Well, and you're always there's... feel like they're, you're one. It's a, the attacks around the corner kind of waiting mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. Constantly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, in the piece you write, you wrote something that was really interesting me, to me. You said um, you talk about how, when you, you came back on, mm-hmm. um, you had a sort of a, a relapse, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you I don't that word you, in general. For, I know you, but, a reminder, but <laughs> you've it been works. off for a few months um, and you went back on feeling like you're in a really secure place. I just want to share this genuine good feeling that I'm having and connect with my people here. And it sent you almost immediately into a spiral of the same feelings and sort of behaviors and anxiety. Um, yeah. And you talk about, losing a bunch of followers then and 
and the, the shame that you felt around that. And I'm really curious about why there was shame, because I felt this too, like when I took a hiatus from my other Instagram account and came back with it kind of repositioning as a sort of a different offering. I mean, I've been hemorrhaging followers. I've lost about 10,000 followers in the past year and a half. And it feels so, it's completely illogical. It feels so painful. I feel like I've done something terribly wrong. I feel like people are just, each unfollow feels like a, like a real attack in a way. And I'm just, it's really, (laughs) I'm wondering where you feel that shame. You actually wrote in the piece, I was ashamed that I cared so much. Yes. About the comments and the unfollows. And I can yes. so relate to that, but it feels like a very key piece in terms of whatever mechanism it is that's keeping us hooked. Yeah. Well, I, I had that Instagram account was so tied to my self-worth completely. Mm. It felt very real as if it was real life. And these were real people that were actually saying, no, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to interact with you as much as I know it doesn't really work like that. And I unfollow people all the time for different reasons. I had so much of my self-worth tied up in that, Mm. that account. And so, yeah, the shame was that shame of like, oh, there's something wrong with me (laughs) that people are leaving, but it's also, there's something wrong with me that I care like this. It was that it's like, am I that much of a child? Am I that, how can I, how could I let this happen to me? How could I, why can't I just fill in the blank? Why can't I just deal with it? Why can't I, and the the shame goes all different places. Why can't I just, you know, say the things I want to say and not worry about people not liking it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's a very sort of gnarly (laughs) mess of shame. And in that shame, though, is a lot of fear. Like, I actually, the article, of course, was much longer (laughs) in -hmm. different iterations. And I actually talked a lot about the fear because it's that account was my, the representation of my professional life, but it's very tied to my personal life. And so there was always this weird balance of what's personal, what's not. And I think that fact is not healthy to some degree. I didn't have a a good set of boundaries about what I, what I share, what I don't, I had like an instinctual kind of boundaries. Like I didn't, I ended up not sharing a lot about my daughter over the years because she just got older and it felt not right. You know, for example, and, and I've never shared a lot about my romantic relationships or anything like that, but I felt like the way this is kind of a little tangent, but I felt like the way to capture people is to share more. And that, that came with, like, if I did walk into that territory, that came with this really gross feeling. Mm. Um, okay. So back to the, the fear though, this, this fear that if I don't, if I'm not running this race, uh, am I going to make it? Am I going to be as it's a, it's a popularity game of high school, man. It totally is. But it's also for, for people whose businesses and income ultimately and livelihood is connected to that. The fear actually has its roots in a, in a very genuine sort of 
not to sound dramatic, but survival need, which is, oh yeah, I need to do this and put myself in this position. I need to win here in order to continue to, to earn a living in order to do what I do. Yeah. That's the feeling, whether how real Mm. that is, I don't, I still don't know, but that Mm. is the absolute feeling Mm. as if I don't stay on this hamster wheel is what it felt like. And, um, then maybe I'm just going to (laughs) disappear. Like I can't afford to disappear. Yeah. Right. Right. If this is, if this is what we want to do. And it's one reason, like, I'm so, again, speaking for myself personally, the majority, like bread and butter of my income now comes from my behind the scenes work, working as a manuscript coach and an editor. And it feels like such a relief for that not to be connected anymore to this um, marketplace where I'm constantly having to pitch myself and constantly. And I also am cognizant of the fact that people want to work with me because of that kind of, they, because I'm known in that way. You're but in the arena. It feels, yeah. it does feel really healthy to have kind of detached from it I and to bet. be focusing more in that area. I bet. I, I feel the same way. I mean, I run a, addition to writing, I run a company, the Luckiest Club, and it's not, mm-hmm. there's there on social media, but I'm, it's not me. And yeah. so much of that work is just behind the scenes, private work, working with people who, are struggling to get sober, mm. stay sober, mm. struggling with life, whatever. And I find that to be the same feeling. It's also that that work feels tangible and real. And yeah, it feels tangible. And it feels to me, I work with someone, I build them for the number of hours I've worked for them and I receive that money. Whereas with Instagram in particular, there's this perception of the more followers you have, the bigger audience, the bigger a quote unquote platform, the more income you're going to make, which is, I don't know if anyone's ever been able to present me with like a spreadsheet or a PL that actually proves that to be the case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I think maybe if you tip into the millions, the millions, yeah. then maybe it's there, but I don't think, I don't, I don't think it has a lot to do with book sales until you get to this mega threshold. I, I really don't. I don't know though. Well, I agree. And actually just from my personal experience again, so my first book, Material Girl Mystical World, was connected to my numinous Instagram, which got up to about 100,000 followers at its height. So the curious, I only started my personal Instagram where I was posting about that like two months or a month before it came out. So the curious has sold five, six times as many books as my first book. And that's largely because of, you know, other media, all sorts. It's a movement too. It's a movement, the subject, like all of, all of the things, but at the same time, it does make a great case for, it's not about followers. Like sales aren't necessarily about followers. It's all, it's not only about that. That's not going to do it on its own. Yeah. And I think that goes for anybody coaching businesses, uh, any, you know, aside, I think, we, we haven't, I don't know if we want to go into this, but I think there are businesses that are very well suited for, for social media. Right. Mm. But, um, like retail and restaurants and like, that's, and, and it can be just about the product and the, the offerings. Right. But this, I think what I've come to sort of see it as, is like when the person 
when the, the work is the person and the person is the work and those two things bleed together as they do with an author sometimes, certainly if the author is writing nonfiction, mm-hmm. you know, fiction is, is quite different, mm-hmm. but we've become personal brands too. That's where I think this, it, that's where I think it's the most tricky um, to, to name. I think, I think it's just the most tricky overall. I think that's where people, the people that I've heard from are the, the that struggle a lot are in that world. Yeah. And I'm glad we have gone to this, this sort of slight side route because yes, I didn't want this to just be for authors because that's obviously a very specific niche, right? But I was thinking about anybody who's an entrepreneur or who has a whatever might fall under the category of personal brand, which let's face it is an aspirational ideal. Most people, not most, but a lot of people, if you ask them, what would they like to do with their life? Something that really, I'm really passionate about, something that reflects who I am as a person, something I can like, you know, really give myself to something where I'm pursuing my own dreams, my own interests. This is what a lot of people would like for their working lives and Instagram and other social media platforms have been pitched as a tool that kind of enables or helps facilitate that sort of a career, even if it's a side hustle, right? (laughs) <laughs> but then I was also thinking about you. Um, there's a quote which I was also thinking is particularly, I mean, I think any individual who has presented themselves in any way on social media, you talk about the impulse to pull out my phone and micromanage my persona. And for me, that really gets to the key of what makes this platform so toxic. And it's also a big, for me, um, crossover with how I felt about alcohol and how the role that alcohol played in my life for me. And I think for many people, alcohol becomes a means to control how we are seen. At least we think so. We think or how we feel right. And and how we feel we're presenting, which is almost one and the same, right. And the kind of persona and the kind of person we want to be and the kind of person we want to be ultimately, you know, which for a lot of us will come down to, well, somebody who fits in to X, Y, Z social situation or relationship or family dynamic, mm-hmm. somebody who is validated by the people I'm surrounded by and by the culture at large. So there is yeah. so much crossover there, I think, when it comes to like validation, fitting in and controlling. That's so interesting. Persona, yeah. you You're know? right. I think the controlling the persona, absolutely. But I haven't really equated that to, to alcohol before that's very very true controlling to control what you're experiencing i mean the the minutia of detail that goes into a single post if you really break it down is wild right this curated whether it's a quote or a picture a picture, it has to be, you know, aesthetically just the way you want it and shows exactly what you hope to convey in the right light and the right setup. And, or maybe it's supposed to look like it's not set up. Okay. Whatever you're trying to do. And then the, the caption and then the hashtags, and then the story that you share about it. And then how you manage the comments. Do you pin this comment or this comment? And do you respond to these comments and how do you respond I mean, that's just one post and we're doing that a couple times a day, certainly a few times a week. 
it's an extraordinary amount of, it's an extraordinary attempt to control a narrative. Absolutely. And then throw in a highly politicized and polarized climate. Yeah. And it's almost impossible to get that quote unquote right. You know? It is it's impossible. impossible. Yeah. And you know that. So you are bracing for what might happen and changing your language. Well, I would, I changed, I, I adjusted it. I think some of that's healthy for sure, but I think some of it is narrows, narrows you into a small scope of what you're willing to talk about or willing to say. And for good reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I actually didn't until recently realize how close I always thought of alcohol as wanting to like pull the ripcord of control off and like, you know, let the, let the air out, let the steam out. But in talking to a, a psychologist, she was like, no, it's really, it's so much about control for people. And, and of course that made sense what it, once it was phrased like that. And yeah, I think social media, I think you're right. That, that is a very prevalent parallel. Well, were you, I think you really hit the nail on the head for me when you said, well, it's about controlling how we feel. So, okay. By controlling how I feel, meaning the kinds of situations I'm able to be myself in or not, the kind of relationships I'm able to show up in, um, the kind of abuse I'm able to withstand, I'm able to control how I am, you know? So for me, the controlling the emotions, controlling how this makes me feel means I'm able to kind of like, it's almost like this buffer. Well, there's no boundary there. It's like, I can be any, I can be anywhere and I can be anything because it has no emotional repercussions for me yeah. until the day, the next day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't in, in real life, quote unquote, but that, that's, you know, there's so many layers to this, which is I think why we wanted to talk. It's like the, the blurring of reality is amazing to me. I remember at one point being shocked when I went to the grocery store because people were, I mean, we all had masks on, this is like in later 2020, but people were being kind to each other and just interacting and saying pleasantries. And I had spent so much time online in that environment of 2020, which was so polarized and painful for everyone involved. And I, I couldn't believe it because I had internalized what the online world is the real world. Mm. Like that, that's frightening. It is frightening. I agree. And it leads to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. You, um, you talk in the piece as well about comparing yourself to other authors negatively. So-and-so is getting more followers. So-and-so is hooked up with this celebrity person, like whatever it is. And I'm probably one of those authors. I'm sure you've been one of those authors that I've compared myself unfavorably to no doubt. at times. No yeah. doubt, right? Because this is another function of this tool. And whether it's by design or whether it's just kind of like the way our psychology is kind of interacting with it. One thing that I also find particularly damaging about it is that it sets up this scenario where every individual is comp in competition with everyone else, regardless oh. of why and what your goals are and what your what winning means in that arena we're all competing against each other all the time and it just yeah. to me that begins to then really erode you know what you were talking about 
which you experienced in the grocery store, which is like, we're human beings having a shared human experience. What's really needed, particularly when we think about some of the bigger issues that are, we're faced with, is a sense of our, our common goals, you know? And yes. I think that this, to spend too much time in that online, inherently competitive space, because it's built on ranking systems that you can see in real time. We believe that life, we come to start to believe that we are in competition with everybody else that we see in the street. And then we wonder why we have these kind of, um, you know, these awfully polarized kind of situations erupting in often really violent ways. Yeah. The, the competition piece is really hard for me. Mm. I think it's natural. I think you know, I thought a lot about a circle of concern, you know, that, that human beings are only made to have a certain number. There's many theories, but one of the theories is like Dunbar's number, like this, this community, he's, it's been refuted and it's also been lauded as a, as a very legitimate theory, who knows, but that hundred, about 150 people is 150 connections is what we can actually manage in our brain and our in our in our psychology and manage those relationships know about the person keep facts in our head and understand status and and all those things that we do naturally and if you think about social media it's the the, the circle of concern is millions billions mm-hmm. and we know that subconsciously even if you don't have a million followers you know that potentially anything could be seen by the world and how does that change you? Mm. Right. And then the competition thing, man, there's, there's just no end to that for me. And I, it's something I, I'm, I'm very ashamed of that too. I don't like that. I had to be kind to myself in that way because I, I'm not in real life, a jealous person. There are people like I would be jealous of authors in real life. Yes. But how many am I going to get exposed to in, in a normal, like in real life situation? A few here and there. If I'm, you know, going to a bookstore, going to an event or watching the news or whatever. But if I, if I want to, I can be exposed to thousands. And you can, there's a number assigned to each of them as well. So it gives and you, you this, see, this immediate, oh, I'm, I'm, better than them. And I'm not as good as them mm-hmm. based on this number. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. And we really internalize that. I mean, it's a, it's been a great way for me to ruin a really good day. Many, many, many times is to see something from someone that I that haven't accomplished yet, or that they've made some relation, had some connection or did an event or, you know, has, has a new book deal or made the New York times bestseller list, whatever it is, you know, then I found myself comparing myself to people who I'm not even in the same world as just thinking, Oh, I got to do more, you know? So it's, yeah, the, the attention leak, the energy leak is infinite. I'm pausing this episode to remind you about the sober curious reset which is a workbook and self-study program designed to guide you through 100 days alcohol-free. I created it to help people apply everything that I've learned over six years of leading the Sober Curious movement to your life today to help you create a sustainable shift to your drinking going forward. 
Now, I know that 100 days of not drinking can sound a little intimidating, but I designed it that way to give you a real taste of all the benefits of living alcohol-free. Having heard from hundreds of people who have now completed the program, I can also say with confidence that this extended, intentional break from drinking can be a game-changer. Each day of content poses a different, sober, curious question. This could be everything from, what do I want to make space in my life for today, to, what am I trying not to feel? Along with a specific teaching on each entry, there is also an interactive exercise for you to engage with. You can get the Sober Curious Reset wherever you buy your books, and you can also join the Sober Curious Book Facebook group to connect with thousands of others who are engaged with this work. I hope to see you there. Now, back to the episode. Yeah. I, the comp- I can completely relate to the competition thing. I mean, I'm, I'm an Aries. I sort of always put my competitive nature down to the fact that I'm an Aries and I like to be first and I'm, I'm quite high achieving, you know, and there yeah. is all of that. And that's great. And it's like, it is part of my personality to just like always be wanting to do something new and chasing something new down. But then that is so exacerbated in this culture of manufactured scarcity, which basically says there's only X number of spots at the top because it's a pyramid system here. And so if you're not up at the top, then you're down at the bottom losing. And I think I one of the ways that I'm kind of trying to, I suppose, um, think differently about social media is just to really call myself out anytime I'm slipping into that thinking and just take a moment and take a step back and give myself a reality check around like success is not a zero sum game. You know, it's like, you selling a ton of books doesn't mean I'm not going to sell a ton of books. If anything, <laughs> right. we're going to help each other. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. exactly. So yeah, I just, I do think it's, um, it's one of those situations where we can sort of blame it all on the, the platform, but then we can also bring a different mindset there. Well, that's you know? where I have evolved into because mm. and this is, you know, the whole second half, I guess, of the conversation is, you know, what, how do you be in the world? And, and it, the only option, what I, when I thought about it, it was like, okay, it, it, it reminded me of wanting to be say an enlightenment teacher or something and thinking that the only option was to be a monk and go live out of civilization. It's like, not everyone can do that, nor do they want to. So if I'm going to be a teacher or a voice, a a writer, which is what I care about, and I'm going to talk about sobriety, is there a way to live in the middle ground in, in, as the Buddhists call, you know, the razor's edge, Mm. not living in the extremes of pulling out completely, which has always been my pattern being at one end of the, the spectrum or the other, never finding a way to be in the middle. And there's some things that, that this doesn't work for. And I've had a fair number of criticisms about returning in some way that, Mm. you know, but you're like, if this is the same as alcohol and you couldn't do alcohol, if alcohol was a no, a zero sum, isn't this too. And I don't think, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. Well, it's a bit like, and I think a lot of people who are kind of beginning their sober curious or sober 
sort of experimentational journey, the thought of being in places where there is alcohol, being around alcohol and being in those social situations is very scary. And so there is a natural instinct to just kind of isolate and not put yourself in the way of alcohol. Yeah. Ultimately, long term, alcohol is in in the the world. world. (laughs) Alcohol is in the world. So you have to find ways to like be be around it and it not impact you, whether it's like physically, mentally, emotionally, to be able to sort of be with it and not That's be right. attached to it and not fall into those same patterns. So I think again, there's a parallel there. So okay, so so now the, the update. Yeah. <laughs> We'd arranged to do this interview. We Before. rescheduled a couple of times and then you left me a voice note a few weeks ago. Okay, update. Um my <laughs> agent and my publisher are not happy. <laughs> They want me to be on Instagram. I have a new book coming out. This is the reality. And again, I was really interested to hear that that was the development because it sort of proves the piece, which is if you are somebody who has something to say and you need someone to pay you to do that, (laughs) then you need to be on Instagram. And I'd always, I suppose, hoped that maybe that wasn't the case. I know, me too. (laughs) um, I went and sought every every case study of every person who's done it without... (laughs) Without Instagram, right. and there are a few, but there, yeah. but they are, but they are few, um, very few. So, what? How did that conversation go down? Well, they never made me. They never. I was never given any sort of ultimatum, but I was gently encouraged to reconsider. And then, in that time frame between October and say. January. So three-ish months or so. It was really, I was really off for most of last year. It was like April, starting in March, April, I I mm. tapped out. And I had actually, after October, I deleted, I archived all my posts. And um, so I really had nothing there. And that psychically gave me this sort of clean slate feeling. <laughs> um and I had people I through my own podcasts and just in conversation with some very wise people that I trust had been also similarly encouraged to reconsider what it means to have a public voice. What What's the responsibility of having a public voice and what does that mean? And not saying you have to do this or you have to do that, but is there a way that you can use that as a as a marketing tool as it's intended to be to reach people because that is something that is important to you as an artist and a writer and can you find a way to do that and not have it be so connected to your self-worth and I didn't know I mean for as is my personality and uh, yeah, I, for a while I was like, never, never again. No, there is no way. I never want to feel that way again. That's really what it was. It was like, I don't ever want to feel the way I felt. I felt very mentally ill, really, as someone who has experienced, you know, acute depression and anxiety, it was about as bad as I have been ever been in sobriety. And that was scary to me. So but I think a few things started to happen. I think the, I, I was able to contextualize 2020 and 2021 as a particularly 
traumatic season and that a lot of my response and how I engaged in that time was a response to that. And so giving myself some compassion for that really is what it was. It was like, how could you have done any better? You know, how could, how, I don't think anyone, I had the, we, like, we all do have this idea that everyone's handling it better, doing better, you know, that wasn't true. Hmm. Um, one conversation I had in particular with Rob Bell really like set a light off because he, <laughs> he's a, he's a certain kind of animal and he, I admire him so much because he truly just knows who he is and he doesn't get, he's been doing this a long time. The work that he's been doing, he doesn't get caught up in a lot of the games, you know, he's already been initiated <laughs> into, into a lot of things that he doesn't bother anymore. I don't know if he ever did, but like concerned with what people think, for example, mm -hmm. or concerned with, um, the, he does, he does his things his own way. And so he uses social media his own way. And we had, I had him on my show and he said, yeah, I always think it's interesting when people are upset that social media is upsetting them. Like when it's doing the thing it's supposed to do, like, why are you surprised that it's doing the thing it's supposed to do? He said, I look at social media as a way to inform and invite to inform people of what I'm doing and invite them. That's it. And does he have the biggest following? No. Does he care? No. Is most of, 99% of the magic of his work is experiencing his work directly, not on social media. Mm. Yes. And mm. so that was a big consideration for me. It was like, what if it's just different? What if I, and I knew that would be hard. And it, And we could talk about that. It's been it's been a process still because mm. I am also who I am, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, so things like that C can, I, ha I had several conversations like that. Yeah. And then my agent and my publisher, and I was like, all right, what would make it so that I could attempt this as an experiment, just as an experiment, let's see. And so I hired someone that had worked for me before and to be in there, mm -hmm. I could go in when I do a live, if I am asked to sometimes for my company, or if I wanted to, I can go in there, but that I would, she would be the one in there commenting, posting, and that it would be really minimal, like not a whole lot of engagement for me, the invite and inform thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sounds great. And it makes a lot of sense. It's making me think a lot about boundaries and how you've got a, another human being actually, who is one of the boundaries that you've created for yourself so that it doesn't, to make you less permeable to the negative impact of social mm -hmm. media. Because I think a lot about how, and again, I don't want to make this all about authors, but I think anybody who would call themselves a sensitive person, an empath, an introvert, which is basically describing a lot of authors. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. It takes a certain type to be able to observe the world so deeply as to want to actually kind of write about it, you know, and it, it's not every writer, obviously, but certainly there's a type. And I think this is probably why you had a lot of writers reach out to you after your Absolutely. piece. But I do think it takes a certain um, kind of a personality. Is it a personality or a, I don't know, physiological trait almost to I be able to both. have that thick of a skin? and for, for it not to impact you. And I think what you said about, um, you know, 2020 
2021 being a particularly emotionally fraught period for anybody who is empathetic or sensitive to currents of emotion um, was going to be having a hard time in a space online where all of that was just kind of being thrown around and within the ethers, you know. And again, another reason I can totally relate to you, another reason I used to drink so much was because it stopped me feeling everybody else's feelings. 100%. You know, Absolutely. So the, bound, the boundaries piece to me is really important here as well. Could you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, no. I, and I think there's some wild statistic of people who experience addiction and highly sensitive people or empaths like 97% or something. So, right. Hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, the boundaries, um, having an, a literal person, like an energetic boundary to absorb that. I, I forgot one point, and this is actually important. I had started a podcast last year in June and we started a new account for it. And it was just like the podcast is what it was doing well, but I knew it could be, I knew it should be doing better. The second I started marketing it on my account, which had a much bigger following, it was like saw, and it's, you know, had this like flywheel since then. So it was like, yeah, this is a marketing channel, you know, Mm -hmm. like this is the, the best marketing channel I have from a, I'm a marketer. I mean, I'm a business person. I have an MBA. Like I, before I was a writer, I, I did all that. It's like, this is just from a strategic point of view. This is just stupid, Laura. Like you got to use this channel if you can, in a way that doesn't cost you, cost you. Um, so yeah, the boundaries, I think, you know, there's the emotional, the, the hard part for me, aside from just the time that I can spend there, which is is a lot. (laughs) And I think that's pretty much the standard for people. It's just very sticky. It's designed to be, there's billions of dollars to make it sticky. But for me, I actually really like connecting with people. Like I really enjoy it. And it's that like networker in me, the, the person that likes connecting, that likes hearing from people and, and, and like seeing how people are doing and hearing about their work. And like, there's a genuine Mm. aspect to me. You, you call it like, you know, your Aries nature wanting to do like the next thing and being a hard worker and wanting to win and all that. I think of it as like Enneagram seven type of person, which I very much am. It's just like, very excited about, I'm an, I'm actually an introvert, but so like something like social media is ideal for me. Cause I can like do, I can exercise that part of me that loves to be stimulated and connect and has all these ideas and gets excited and enthusiasm. And I like, like technology. I always have, I've been an early adopter of everything. And I like, even like social media, like just the, the using it has always been very intuitive. So, um, That I knew is the more difficult part for me, like not doing that, Mm. like the, that not participating in that I knew like that's hard. So, so it's kind of like a reverse boundary. It was like a let, like a, it's been like a letting go 
Like you're not going to get to do that kind of stuff that you like. Um, and I have a couple times gone in there and done, um, like stories. I did a little questions thing. And one time I, I like not too long ago, I got in, I commented on a post and then I got this whole thing coming back at me. And then it was like, oh my God, right. This is just too easy. Like it happens like that, yeah. you know? So yes, boundaries, but knowing what it is that trips you up, why, what's the draw for you? And for me, it's this sort of very specific thing of the, it's, it's what I just said. Um, because none of that comes without the other stuff. Right. <laughs> Same as with does. alcohol. The Same high never comes alcohol. without the hangover. It just mm-hmm. doesn't. Mm-hmm. So many of us waste so long trying to make that not true. Absolutely. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that all, you know, it starts out as just fun and then just fun and some problems. And then, you know, eventually you're all problems. And it was never, it never got to be all problems for me with, with social media because it it would never be, you know, I am, there is some benefit to it from a professional standpoint. So, Mm. and I've never had a problem with it personally, like that from my own personal accounts, like I just have never really cared. So I, 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 I'm still processing this. Like I'm still figuring it out. I'm still the, and I think, I think that we always will be like, it's not going away. So as long as we are working people in the world, working writers, this is something we're going to have to navigate. And that's something I settled on too. It's like, this isn't going away and you're not Zadie Smith <laughs> and you're exactly. not Cal, and you're not Cal Newport. Okay. Laura, like you're just not right now. So if you get to that place and then maybe you can tap out, but that's not where you are right now. So it's so funny. You mentioned Zadie Smith. I'm currently rereading white teeth, which came out in 2000. Um, I remember and she came from the same part of London as comes from the same part of London as me. So there's so much I recognize that the language and the tone and the street oh. culture that she describes and just all of it. And I remember a few years ago reading an interview with her where she said she has no social media mm-hmm. because she knows how much it would impact her voice as a writer. She would lose yeah. her freedom to just express herself. She lo- and there is something she, so- she says specifically, she says, I would lose, I need to reserve my right to be wrong. <sighs> Reading this book from 2000, it's so fucking joyously, like, just colorful and problematic and, like, creative and expressive and all the things. And it's a joy to read. And it also feels mega relevant to so much of what's going on now. It could have been written now, but I've already been reflecting on how challenging it would have been for her to write that book now, you know? Yeah. Um, So interesting. Well, she's never, she's one of those that has held tight. And mm. I mean, her work is spectacular. Well, she had this huge bestseller before she, she was able to establish herself before it was, was it on needed. Beauty? No, I mean, White Teeth was her first book. I think she was like in her late twenties or mid twenties. Oh, when it came I thought out. it was on beauty, but White Teeth must've come first. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really fascinating process for and me. And I think like you said, we all kind of, cause it was pitched as this is a way for you to connect with your friends. It wasn't mm-hmm. pitched as a marketing tool. And it, yet, well, it, it is a marketing tool. It wasn't a marketing tool. Only five years ago, it wasn't really a marketing tool. Right. I, I mean, 
I remember getting Instagram in 2013 and it was just pictures. There were no brands there. True. There were no ads. There were no stories. There were, it was only pictures. And in 2013, I wrote an article for the Times in London about the rise, the, the rise of the personal brand. Now that we have social media, we can all become personal brands. <laughs> <laughs> right, really? but here is here's a big part of the issue again this is something else let me see I have another question here where I wrote about this so there's this this idea and I think you're absolutely right as a marketing tool it's brilliant and why wouldn't we use it if we can confine it to being that in our lives you know if, if we're right. somebody if we're somebody who has something to to kind of market there mm-hmm. but um I think and I know authenticity is such a big part of who you are Mm-hmm. And I know you have a lot of cognitive dissonance around when you're not being authentic and you're not being yourself and you're not being honest. I mean, your podcast is called Tell Me Something True. Mm-hmm. So I remember I was listening to, I can't remember who was talking about this on another podcast. And they were saying, as soon as something is, um, as soon as something is being marketed, it can no longer be authentic. As soon as something is being produced yeah. or created or posted or shared, with any kind of an agenda or a goal, it is no longer authentic. But by definition, it is now yeah. being done in service of that goal. Even if the goal is only likes, it's still sure. being created. It's, it's, it, I think that being authentic on social media is an oxymoron. I don't think, I don't know if it's possible. I agree. I think there's degrees uh, that you can get closer to the mark mm. of authenticity. But yeah, we are only authentic in, in the moment, our, our true self in like a psychological sense, uh, as determined by Winnicott is this, is the spontaneous in the moment present self by definition, that's the only place we can be truly authentic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so once we're, I mean, even memoir writing as honest as you want it to be has you know, it's fluid because memory is fluid. And when we're trying to telling a story, you need to kind of get from an A to a B and yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's absolutely true. And that was one of the things that really like is related to the, when I realized I was not in my life and that all my, everything I was filtering through this thing of, could I use it as content? That is the, what disturbed me so much was that it sucked the life out of my life. (laughs) Mm. Nothing could just be what it was. I couldn't just enjoy the sunset for what it was. I had to capture the sunset, repackage the sunset, post the sunset, monitor the post on the sunset. And in that I lost the magic of the sunset. Mm. Yeah. And when that starts to bleed into your relationships, like that's one of those things where I watch, I'm like people like performing their relationships and, you know, I don't, I have no, like people should do whatever they, they can or want to do. And, and I'm sure it's just fine for some people, but for me, it's like, at what point, what's off limits now? Mm. I don't know that anything is, I mean, we, we see, photos of people giving birth. We see photos of people crying. We see photos of everything. So, 
and and we're we're hitting mostly on the the dark sides. I think there's tremendous positives that come with us with all of this too. I wouldn't even I I always say I don't know that I would have a writing career mm. without it, or at least it wouldn't have happened. It would have taken longer. It would have been different, right? Mm-hmm. So there, are, I wouldn't know you. Maybe mm-hmm. you know. I don't know. Maybe we would, mm. but. Yeah, it's hard to know how things would be if we didn't have it because we have it and it has indelibly shaped our lives and careers and and interactions over the past decade and will continue to do so. I'm very curious just to finish up. Mm -hmm. You have a a daughter um, and during your hiatus is when all of the kind of um, reports started coming out around what Facebook had hidden about the mental health impacts for young girls in particular. And when I think about myself at age 13, 14, the thought of having to perform my life online and allow myself to be rated for everything from my looks to my grades, to my outfits, to who I was hanging out with, just, I mean, I honestly don't know how I would have survived that kind of a world. And so I'm really curious about how that has impacted your feelings about this platform going forward and perhaps even um, a sense of responsibility Mm-hmm. towards maybe helping in some ways to make it a safer place or a less yeah. harmful place at least. Yes, that definitely has played into it uh, because my daughter's turning 13 this week. Mm, wow. And she's right in, you know, she's in seventh grade, it's just right in that. And we have not let her have social media and my, my, MO, our MO with her dad is to hold out until she's until as long as humanly possible. I think maybe 16, you know, because at that point it's like you start to veer into weird territory where it's like you can drive a car, but you Mm -hmm. can't, you know, um, it's hard enough as it is. I see the way that she's not on it, but her friends are. And so she misses out and she's also, I hear her friends having conversations about what they see on Snapchat. And it's all the horrors that you would imagine that happened in a smaller context when we didn't have social media. Now it just is 24 seven, you know, who's with who, where you're not, where you're not invited, uh, who's liking who, and all it's, it's all the same things that we experience, but at that that Mm. age when you're so tender and it's a nightmare. Mm. So yeah, it definitely played into that. Um, it always has my social media use has always, she's been the mirror, the biggest mirror for me because I've gone through a years long process with it. I've quit, not quit fully, but I've taken many hiatuses. I've tried digital minimalism. I've been writing about this really since 2017, and it's always comes back to her and thinking, what am I doing when, what am I showing her, mm. you know, and I'm preaching to her about getting off her screen and here I've got it like, you know, my face is like buried in it. So yeah, I, I think where I land on that too, is it's also not going away. So how, how do we model some form of health? I don't even know if it's possible. I don't think mm-hmm. we know where this experiment has is is going to take us. Mm-mm. I think most of what we're living through right now, um, all that has come out uh, through culture, through politics, 
um, is so largely tied to technology and social media specifically that sometimes I feel complete despair because it's like we've built a Frankenstein and we don't know how, where this ends up. Other times I feel more hopeful. Mm. Um, but I think, I don't know that we, I, I, I don't imagine a world where it goes away. No. So I think the answer is trying to model some kind of, some kind of health. You know, I really, I don't have it on my phone. I really like try to be where I am when I'm there. Um, but it's not perfect. Right. You know, I'm, I work from home. I'm a single mom. It's, she's and it's part me. of your work. And it's, it's part, part of it work. is part of my work. Right. I don't, yeah. I'm not a lawyer, you know, that it's like, it is, it is part of my work. So I'm not, yeah. Anyway, it's complicated and complicated. Uh, yeah, maybe that's what this episode should but be called. But I do think continuing to have conversations about sobriety and addiction and relating it back to our relationship with social media and with technology is mm-hmm. a way of, I think, helping to create awareness of what destructive or self-destructive behaviors we might be engaging with there. Yeah. You know? I think that's what we have to do, just like with everything else. You know, I had to learn how to be a person a non-drinking person in a drinking world. Mm. I'm eight years into that. And I don't think about drinking ever at all um, because, and I I haven't drank for that long. And so it's not the drinking. And so social media is a little different. It's like Mm. kind of like a food. Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking about that. It's also not necessary for, you know, food is is much more necessary and primal than social media, but it's, if it's going to be there, how do I, how do I hold it? Yeah. I actually had a really good podcast interview with an eating disorders and recovery coach. And she was talking about how with eating disorders and with alcoholism, we live in a hostile recovery environment, meaning we are constantly confronted and needing to interact with the the thing, which Mm -hmm. is causing us harm. And I think we could say the same about social media. Yeah. And I'm sure there will be, I mean, I know there already are programs for it, for Mm. recovery, and I'm sure there will just be more and more that comes out over time. And Certainly, hopefully, limitations on age and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. But does prohibition work? I mean, that's a whole conversation. No, it usually doesn't. (laughs) But tech is, you know, we're in this wild season with tech. Who knows what the world will look like in five years? I mean, we just truly don't know. Facebook could not exist. It could could be determined to be this detrimental, you know, thing to society and it dissolves into mm-hmm. other small factions of mm-hmm. communities and things like that. Who knows? Well, this is a good way just to, just to completely finish up. Like I think one of the things that I've been doing around Instagram in particular is really saving my more nuanced, complicated, challenging content for podcasts and for my long form newsletter. Same. And because you having, trying to bring that content to social media is just a recipe for disaster. Well, you can and just you probably work. do very well and you get all kinds, but it's not worth the cost. Yeah. And it feels, yeah, it, it's <laughs> exactly. There's probably like, I don't know, one day a month when I have the resilience related to my, where I'm at in my hormonal cycle to kind of like be there and kind of like put that out there, but it's right, like one so day minimal month. one day a month. I can actually, I can go say this kind of controversial, but interesting thing and not be completely like <laughs> annihilated. annihilated. So anyway, all that said, 
this is why I'm one reason I love podcasts. We're reaching thousands of people, but it feels like it's just us. And there's something kind of yeah. intimate and freeing about that. One yeah. reason I think lots of people are moving to newsletters. And I guess I just wanted to set you up to let people know where they can find you now that you're yes. not already on social. Yes. Yes. I'm, um, I do have a newsletter. Um, and my website, it's lauramccowan.com. My newsletter, I, I, I'm typically very good at sending it out once a week. Um, and I really like writing them in this sort of last season of finishing this book. I'm less good about it, but it, it at least comes out every Thursday to let people know the latest podcast episode that always drops on Thursday. So that's, yeah, that's where I am. Wonderful. Well, I'll include those links in the show notes. Laura, thank you you so much for your work and thanks for coming back on. Thanks. That was my conversation on Insta Addiction with Laura McCowan. I hope it wasn't too specific to us as authors. I would actually love to hear what parts resonated with you. If you're listening in real time, this is also the final episode for the current season of the pod. And if you've just come across the show, there are 70 plus episodes for you to discover in total. As always, if you enjoyed what you heard here, please rate and review the show wherever you listen. Sober Curious Podcast also features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com.